Today, it's Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. Highlights from just one season's worth of programs from the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. The principle of peace is not pre-contact. Equity, that's not pre-contact. Those are constants. And if you don't have those, you're going to suffer the consequence. Again, some people have learned to deal with uh, their political power by intimidation, by making threats, by bullying. But there really are advantages to civility in getting the people's work done. The work is challenging and it, and it is hard. And you will feel like, am I going to get something out of this? Here's what you do get. You, get. you get to live your life according to your actual values. Stay tuned for inspiring and informative samples from the 2020 season of Peace Talks radio programs, just ahead. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. I'm Paul Ingalls, co-founder and producer of Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast that, since 2002, has created over 220 programs exploring all elements of peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies and history. Our aim since the beginning has been to offer you listeners effectively a peace studies curriculum, leaving you with information, inspiration, and a toolkit that you can apply to bringing more peace to your lives to those in your circles of family, friends, neighborhood, city, nation, and world. You can access all the shows in our series dating back to 2002 at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. But as we've done every season since the beginning, we've wrapped things up with a listen back to some gems from the programs of that year. Today, it's programs from the year 2020, which will forever be remembered as one of the most challenging years dominated by a worldwide pandemic from the COVID-19 virus that killed around 300,000 Americans alone. It was another contentious and often uncivil major election year in the United States. More high-profile police killings, too, of people of color touched off intense citizen protests, worldwide, actually. And the global climate crisis worsened. And we touched on many of these conflict topics in our series. In fact, in every major election year, we've revisited the topic of how to promote more civil dialogue in our political conversations. Our co-founder Suzanne Kreider talked with Brent Hill, who became a member of the Idaho State Senate in 2000 and its president pro tem in 2010. He's also the director of a program called Next Generation at the National Institute for Civil Discourse. Suzanne asked him, who seems to be most responsible for uncivil discourse in recent years? I think uh, the politicians themselves, the, the lawmakers, the, the uh, policymakers uh, have to uh, develop a, a discourse that is civil. Uh, I, the citizens come in there, too. Uh, they're the ones who elect uh, those lawmakers. They need to let those lawmakers know what their expectations are. If they keep electing people that are bullies, that they get their way through threatening and other ways. Uh, I guess we all, all deserve what we, uh, what we elect there. And then the media, you, you know, you can't let them off uh, completely. Uh, contention is more uh, interesting to report on than, uh, than cooperation or civility. And, uh, and so they, they certainly play a role in it. Some of the problems we have are at the national level, but we need to remember that about half of those people serving in Congress once served in their state legislature. And so if we can uh, 
start developing those good habits of civility uh, within the legislatures, uh, particularly with leadership and, and uh, who set the tone uh, a lot of times for uh, the atmosphere that is found in each legislative body. Then that's going to carry over. Uh, many of them will uh, later serve at a federal level, and so uh, to be able to work at the at the local state level and talk about you know building relationships, building friendships, and how important that is in order to uh, promote civility. It's pretty tough to be mean to a friend. Uh, it's a little easier to be mean to a stranger, and so uh, helping people develop relationships, even within the political realm, I think is very important. And that's something we're trying to do at Next Generation. With Next Generation, what are some of the approaches that you teach people? First of all, we need to determine what are the advantages of civility. Again, some people have learned to deal with uh, their political power by intimidation, by making threats, by bullying. But there really are advantages to civility in getting the people's work done and building that trust so that you can work together and get more ideas and be respectful of those ideas and so forth. We take the legislators through their personal journey and find out what makes them tick. What were the life-changing experiences in your life? And, uh, And as you start sharing those things and realize they have lives of their own, and again, if we can get to know one another better and understand one another better, then again, it's a lot more difficult uh, not to treat someone else with with some civility and respect. Then we try to identify the problem areas within that legislative body. And that comes from the group themselves. Where are our weaknesses? Is it one body more than another? Is it with our relationship between parties or between uh, legislative bodies or with the executive branch? Let's try to identify those problem areas and then come up with an action plan so that we can uh, start working on those things that might be hindering us. Uh, from having the kind of civility we want. Brent, because you're a politician in the Idaho state legislature, the Senate, tell us of how there's been a peaceful solution to some kind of civil discourse uh, where the opponents were on opposite sides. And then tell us a story that's kind of unpleasant, where there was a lack of peacefulness, a lack of civility, in the legislature? I'll, I'll, I'll take the one where uh, we were not as successful as I wish we could have been, uh, was back uh, with the Affordable Care Act when uh, we were looking at uh, setting up a state-based health insurance exchange. Uh, this split not only the legislature as a whole, but it split uh, the caucus, particularly the Republican caucus, uh, as those who uh, wanted to try to solve problems at the state level and others who uh, didn't want to deal with the problem at all. That took us the whole session, the whole legislative session, three months, and there were some hard feelings uh, there. It took us a while to resolve those problems. In fact, it took us the interim to do that. Uh, and, And so that leads in, I guess, to the success part. There were sore feelings, particularly between the House and the Senate when the legislative session ended. And the Speaker of the House, uh, Speaker Bedke and I got together and we visited and we said, this is not the way we want to do things in Idaho. These are not the relationships we want to have between the House and the Senate. And we committed to each other at that time that we would uh, do whatever we needed to do in order to restore the good relationship that we have historically had between the House and the Senate uh, in Idaho. We worked uh, all, all summer long. 
We had several meetings with uh, House leadership and Senate leadership, uh, just the majority uh, with the minority. And we had to start with leadership. And then we each went around uh, the state and visited with our members. Uh, We had uh, town hall meetings with them, but uh, I did not limit my visits to only Senate members and the speaker didn't only limit his visits to House members. Uh, We talked to our legislators uh, wherever they were in whatever part of the state. Again, uh, showing some interest in in their lives. Uh, We visited them at their homes. Uh, We visited them uh, with them at their businesses, got to know in many cases, their families and their children. And uh, you know what, when we went back that uh, following January, uh, it, it only took us about uh, four or five days, we felt like, uh, until things were back to, to, to the good part of normal. That's Idaho State Legislator Brent Hill, interviewed by Suzanne Kreider. And you can hear more from that episode about improving civility and political discourse on our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for the July 2020 episode. Another politically themed show from that season was our profile in peace of the 39th president of the United States, Jimmy Carter. We revisited his story with one of his former top aides, Stuart Eisenstadt, who called our attention to Carter's landmark address to the nation that came to be known as his Crisis of Confidence speech from July of 1979. As you know, there is a growing disrespect for government and for churches and for schools, the news media, and other institutions. This is not a message of happiness or reassurance, but it is the truth, and it is a warning. Part of President Jimmy Carter's address to the nation July 15, 1979. And I asked his domestic policy advisor from those years and our guest today on Peace Talks Radio, Stuart Eisenstadt, about those remarks. Well, he started off his major energy speech, unlike I think any president's ever addressed to his public, by saying, I want to have an unpleasant talk with you today. He saw himself almost as the bearer of bad news in order to convince the public to face up to things. Stu Eisenstadt, I'm wondering if you can relay a personal or professional encounter that really cements President Jimmy Carter's place in your heart as this man of decency and integrity and courage? I remember being on Air Force One, coming back from our last campaign stop in 1980. And Pat Cadell, his pollster, called and said, all the movement is to Reagan. We're going to lose this. The hostage crisis has come back up again. And I remember him coming out, and I embraced him, and I cried, and I said, you know, we've let you down. And he said, no, you didn't let me down. Uh, We did the best we could. So there were those kinds of personal instances. And one other personal instance, I think, he was sometimes viewed as very cool uh, personality. But let me give you an example of, uh, beside the personal examples, I had worked, as I mentioned, with uh, Vice President Humphrey when he was running for president. I was his policy director in 1968. Humphrey lost, but then ran for the Senate, was elected, and became part of the leadership. So we had weekly leadership breakfasts. And Humphrey had then developed uh, uh, stomach cancer. He was going to the National Institutes of Health for radiation and uh, chemotherapy. And and President Carter would, would reschedule the times of the leadership breakfasts so that Hubert could get 
his, uh, his cancer treatments. And then when he was clearly failing, Jimmy Carter did something quite am- amazing. Uh, he, he said to then-Senator Humphrey, uh, I understand from Vice President Mondale that you've never been to Camp David. He said, I can't believe that. You were vice president for, for four years with Johnson. He said, Mr. President, I've never been to Camp David. Johnson never invited me. Never have I been. And he, and he said, well, you're going to go now. And he arranged for him to come to the Oval Office. He had him sit behind the president's desk, and he said, you should have been sitting here yourself. They took a helicopter up to Camp David, and they spent the day and evening at Camp David together. It was the first and only time Humphrey was ever at Camp David, and it showed his humanity. Now, finally, Stu, how do you view Jimmy Carter through a peacemaking lens? Yes, well, I mean, he took great pride in the fact that no soldier died in combat on his, uh, in, in his term. He actually built the military up after Vietnam. He, he had 3% real increases in defense spending. But he was very careful about not injecting American troops uh, where they could not be helpful and, again, took great pride in, in that. Um, he, he negotiated the SALT Treaty, Panama Canal Treaty, uh, Human Rights, the Middle East Treaty. All of these were great peacemaking efforts. He was a peacemaker. He followed that in his post-presidency. But, you know, if there's one word that would describe the foreign policy of Jimmy Carter, it was peacemaking. Peacemaking with Panama, peacemaking with China normalization, peacemaking with Egypt and Israel. All of these really exemplified his emphasis on peacemaking. And he won a Nobel Prize for this, I think, belatedly, but he won it. That's President Jimmy Carter's aide, Stuart Eisenstadt, author of the book Jimmy Carter, The White House Years. You can hear that complete program at peacetalksradio.com in our January 2020 episode. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. Highlights from just one season of our series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Next up, part of an episode called Resolving Conflict Around Perceived Mental Illness. One guest was Kermit Cole, a marriage and family therapist from Santa Fe, New Mexico, who offered some insight for host Suzanne Kreider. Kermit, you've referred to people who are perceived as mentally ill as similar to whistleblowers, because they might see something we don't see or they see it in a different way that we don't see or can't see. Why is this important for peacemaking that we listen to people who see things differently? Well, maybe one way to think about that is that um, if we're only listening to people that we already understand, then we're going to be missing a lot of things. I mean, I think another element of being human is that to the degree to which we're able to weave in all the perspectives that are available, we're going to have a much more elaborated, fully you know, multidimensional view of our world. We're going to see into the past and into the future. We're going to see around corners and we're going to see over the horizon. And if the only perspectives that we're able to integrate into our understanding of the world are the ones that we already understand, then ultimately we're, we're in danger. Uh, because something's going to come at us from an angle that we don't, we're not ready for. And so as, as in terms of making a peace, uh, a world of peace, the better we get at being able to hear and incorporate all the perspectives, even when they're disturbing or frightening, uh, the more peaceful it's going to be.
one of the stories I tell a lot is somebody I was talking to who um, was trying to tell me that aliens had given him the cure for cancer. And uh, so we went around a lot about that. He was very eager that I would agree that this could have happened. And then at some point I said, well, I, I really could, can't say whether it had happened or not. That's not my expertise. Uh, but what I'm interested in is what it would mean to you if it had happened, if you had the cure for cancer. What would that mean? And he said, well, then, and he just blurted out, well, then people would really like me. And that went right into my heart. You know, and then I thought, oh, that I, that I understand. And I looked back in that moment at all the things, the huge things that I'd done in my life just in the hope that somebody would like me. And some of which worked out well and some of which worked out terribly, but you know, for the most part, you know, worked out okay. And, uh, and I realized, but some of them were just as crazy. I was just lucky that I happened to zero in on some way to make people like me that, that you know, that worked. And um, he was unlucky and picked uh, aliens giving him the cure for cancer for whatever reason. But I can say that as soon as he said that, the whole tone changed and the subject never came up again. And we just talked about baseball. So the incentive is to just as well as you can, try to listen for what it might mean to a person if the thing they're saying were true or could be true. And often there's, you find that there's a really good reason to have tried to hear that. You know, I think the problem with psychiatry for me is that it seems to offer solutions that seem to be certain and seem to promise, make the promise of absolute safety and, and results. And I don't think that that's actually true. I think it's, if, we, if we're thinking in terms of that, the possibility of creating a world that's perfectly safe, anybody that's telling you that they can give you that is lying. They're trying to sell you something. What I'm saying is the world is an inherently unsafe enterprise. You have to choose whether you want to be in it, and which involves taking the risks that sometimes you might get hurt. I have taken risks with clients who I fully expected would be violent and were. I didn't do it because I conned myself or anybody else into thinking that I had an answer that was going to prevent that. I did it because... As a matter of justice, I've had every good thing in life that a person could ask for, and this other person hasn't. And therefore, for me, it was justice to take the risk. And that's why you do it, because I, I'd rather hope for the good things that I think can come from this choice than choose the bad outcomes that come from the other choice. Therapist Kermit Cole from our episode on conflict around perceived mental illness. You can hear more from that interview, as well as Suzanne Kreider's other two guests on the program, Theta Newbrest and Sanjit Sihota, at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for our February 2020 episode. More to come when our special continues right after this short break. You're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. I'm Paul Ingalls. We're presenting highlights from just one season of our long-running series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. All the shows excerpted today can be found under the 2020 tab under Peace Talks radio episodes at our website, peacetalksradio.com. 
Next up, an excerpt from Megan Kamrick's interview with Leila Saad, author of the book Me and White Supremacy, Combat Racism, Change the World, and Become a Good Ancestor. You ask in the book, as people are doing this, that we avoid relying on people of color to help in that processing. Why is that? Yeah, yeah. You may start to realize if there are people of color in your life and you want to have these conversations with them, first of all, you need to understand that the the toll of emotional labor it's going to require of them. And then secondly, if they do say yes, that you have to make sure that they are giving clear consent and that they understand what they're consenting to because it's not an intellectual conversation for them. It's a very real life, lived, embodied experience for them, and it's not fair to put that on them. You have chapters on white silence and white saviorism. In the first, you write that no matter what level of power or influence we have, our voice is needed, Mm. but not as white saviors. Yes. Explain the difference here and how trying to do the first could lead to people mistakenly doing the second. (laughs) Right. And people really struggle with this because, again, it becomes that either or. Am I supposed to speak up or am I not supposed to speak up? It's really important for people to understand there's no checklist for how to do this work perfectly. When you see something racist happening, it is up to you to say something. Because often in a situation where if the person of color is maybe one of the only people there and everyone else is white, when they speak up, that person of color speaks up and says, this is racist, oftentimes they will be gaslit and told, this wasn't really about race. Why are you playing the race card? They didn't mean it that way. But when a white person will stand in solidarity with them, which is what allyship is, to back up their voice, that person of color knows that they're not alone. And so that's very, very important. But even also when a person of color isn't there, and maybe it's just white people and racism isn't happening, say something. Mm-hmm. You know, you know it's wrong. Say something. White saviorism, is, it's very important to interrogate the intention behind which you may be trying to do something. Are you doing it because you want to look like the good white person? Or are you doing it because it's the right thing to do? And furthermore... In trying to help, are you taking the stance that I know what's best for them or am I consulting with them and and asking how may I be of service? And I'm so grateful for the people in my life who do that, you know, who ask me, how how can I support you in this situation? Would it be helpful if I did this? Would I be helpful if they did that? And they give me the choice. Intent often comes up in these conversations about race when people are called out. They might say, but I didn't mean X, Y, or Z. How can we shift that conversation? Mm -hmm. Many teachers in this work often talk about the difference between intent and impact. Your intention is for many people to be a good person, for the vast majority of people. But the impact is that whether you like it or not, whether you accept it or not, white supremacy exists, it impacts you, and it shows up in your thoughts and beliefs, and then it shows up in your behaviors. And so people really need to get out of this, but I'm not trying to be a racist because once again, it shuts down the conversation, right? If I were to bump into you, my first reaction is, I'm so sorry. It wasn't my intent to bump into you, but I did. And I apologize because I may have knocked you over or hurt you. How is doing this personal work necessary in order to address racism at a systemic level and create a better society, basically? What I want people to understand is institutions and systems are upheld by individual people. 
When you begin to interrogate within yourself and really look at yourself and create change from within, you change how you show up in the world. We have absolutely had progress in the world. If it was just about changing the law, then we just wouldn't have racism. Mm -hmm. Because if you as an individual hold white privilege, that means you as an individual are also unconsciously in some way causing harm to people of color. That's where you hold the power to, to create change. And I really want people to feel empowered to create change as individuals. I, I want to end by just saying the work is challenging and it, and it is hard. And you will feel like, am I going to get something out of this? Do I get a certificate? Do I get something at the end of it? Do and you cookies? don't. You don't get a cookie. You don't get <laughs> anything at the end of it. But here's what you do get. You, get. you get to live your life according to your actual values. Your actual values being, I want people to be treated equally and I don't want to cause harm or I want to cause less harm. And you, you get that gift, which is priceless. You're not just seen as good, but you're actually doing good. Again, Megan Kamrick's full interview with Layla Saad, author of Me and White Supremacy, Combat Racism, Change the World, Become a Good Ancestor, can be found at Peace Talks Radio under Peace Talks Radio episodes, our March 2020 show. Also in 2020, our special correspondent, Judy Goldberg, talked with another national leader in confronting hate crimes. Arjun Singh Sethi, who wrote the book American Hate, Survivors Speak Out. Sethi spoke with Judy Goldberg of his travels meeting with hate crime survivors. When I took to the road in 2017, I expected and anticipated to find plenty of pain, grief, and suffering, and I did. But every survivor with whom I met was resilient and optimistic and was doing their part to make the world a better place, to make sure that people weren't in the future targeted the way that they were. And so I think every testimonial includes examples. And, and anyone can do this, right? I mean, you know, people can talk about racism and hate as public health issues because they are. Black folks are dying prematurely in this country because of systemic racism and injustice. I think also one of the things I've been encouraging folks to think about is to just organize preventively, to create local committees, local task force that are in place in the event that hate strikes. Because people don't realize if there is a hate crime, who is going to support that survivor? A lot of times survivors don't have health care. They don't have access to mental health resources. Uh, sometimes they need legal representation. Sometimes media just shows up at their door and bombards them. So just making sure that they have the resources and work they need, making sure that community organizations on the front line, organizations that you often don't hear about because they're not on the news, because their voices aren't often featured and included, have the support they need because they are the ones who are always supporting survivors long after the media loses interest, long after politicians lose interest. How do you keep yourself strong? How do you reinvigorate yourself when the fight is challenging and hard? You know, there's something I'll share here um, that has been a bit new for me, but it has been awesome. Increasingly, it's history and it's knowing what people have done before us and the sacrifices they've made. I've always known it, but I think I'm much more intentionally now engaging with that history, engaging with that past. And I find it empowering, and I find that it it's this sort of inanimate force that connects us all. And so increasingly, I'm finding solidarity and comfort in people who've marched and people who've protested and people who've made sacrifices. I think we need to push ourselves more. 
And I think there's more that we can do and more that we need to be doing given some of what's happening in this country. And so while I do take comfort and solace in the fact that people are organizing, people are coming together, I do think it's got to be more sustained. And I think it's also got to be coordinated and tied to a particular agenda, you know, an agenda of equity, an agenda of liberation. So here you are, someone who is concerned about what you're talking about, concerned about racism, hate crimes, discrimination, the injustices that we are seeing mounting in our world today. What do you do if you're interested in being more involved? First, look at your own backyard. And I say that because when we're talking about things like racism and hate and misogyny and gender violence and fascism, Sometimes they seem like intractable problems and they seem far away. But the fact of the matter is that sometimes there are people in our own family, in our own community, who have hateful and biased views. And so when you see those views being manifested and articulated, take them on. Two, connect with other people who feel similarly to you. There's always strength in numbers. Three, find a community organization. And so I will tell you, there are community organizations across this country who are looking for volunteers. They're looking for financial support. They're looking in some cases for community connections. And then finally, most people are members of different institutions. And so let's say you are a member of a church, a synagogue, a mosque. You are a member of a PTA. You are a member of a reading group. You're a member of your local library interventions. Make sure your library has the newest books on these issues. Make sure they're on display. Make sure that your PTA is ensuring that students aren't being bullied in school, and if they are, that they're getting the resources they need. Make sure that your workplace has an up-to-date equity and inclusion policy. And you know what? Have them bring speakers to talk about these issues. Do your part. Everyone has a role in making the world a better place and making the world a safe place for human beings, for animals, for the environment. And so figure out a way to get involved. And, and finally, thank everyone who is doing that work. There is a universe of us. and There is a large global community of us who are trying to make the world a better place. Arjun Singh Sethi, interviewed by Judy Goldberg. And you can hear more from our May 2020 episode at peacetalksradio.com. Also in that episode, my conversation with media literacy advocate and teacher Rob Williams from Vermont. We were talking about the potential impact of social media on our daily peace of mind. To cultivate peace of mind, this is Peace Talks Radio, to cultivate peace of mind, we need a healthy sense of ourselves and a healthy sense of our place in the world and how we make meaning of our lives. And I think what happens too often with so-called social media, a couple things. One is social media can be very isolating. We've all are well-versed in individuals with social media platforms on their mobile devices who in social situations are much more interested in being on these social media platforms than being present in social encounters. And that happens all the time. But the other more insidious thing, back to the data transfer, and I want to reference a brilliant new book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Uh, Eight years in the making by uh, a woman at uh, Harvard University in the business school. Her name is Shoshana Zuboff. She has a brilliant verb to describe what happens 
in this situation. The verb is render. And she uses the word render in two ways. First of all, when we're on these social media platforms, we are rendering over the intimate details of our lives to these companies. And what these companies do, render in the second sense, is they render, they chop up, as if you were throwing a beef cow into a slaughterhouse, they chop up or render our very human experiences, chop them up into these binary codes of digital data they can then use to sell us back what we say we want or give over these data points to other for-profit third-party providers and companies that will run, run and, and governments, let's be clear, that can take this information and do with it what they will. Also, the goal is the creation of predictive behavioral futures markets. If Facebook, for example, can predict the collective future behavior of a swath of its 2 billion plus users online, that gives Facebook tremendous power over us flesh and blood humans uh, over the long haul. And that's a really sophisticated concept. And I, I wake up every morning thinking about it. So we as a species, as well as we as individuals, have to contend with the pros and cons of this very strange relationship with these companies. The thing that uh, got me thinking the most was this predictive element. When we lose our ability to be unpredictable, if everything is kind of anchored to our existing preferences and that they know what flips our trigger and our trigger keeps getting flipped, then we don't have a moment, a quiet moment, as we were talking earlier, to think about, well, do I really want that? Is that really what makes me happy? And it takes a little bit away of our will to make a different choice. I think if you said that really brilliantly, Paul. I think that is what she's saying. And Zuboff, in this book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, she lays out three human rights of the digital age. Number one, and most obviously, is the right to privacy. As human beings, we should fight for and pursue the right to privacy because it gives us those quiet, contemplative spaces of solitude in which we can cultivate a certain sensibility about ourselves and our possible future selves, to be Jungian about it for just a minute, right? The less privacy we have, the less opportunity we have to really kind of meditate on who we are and what we might or who we might become. It's one of the West's great inventions, I think, is the right to privacy, right? We, we need that. The second uh, right she talks about is the right uh, to be forgotten. If I commit a crime and I do my jail time, I pay my fine, I do my community service, I remand myself back into polite society after doing my time. But this crime follows me around the internet for the rest of my life. So I'm in a job interview 25 years later and up comes some story about, oh yeah, Williams committed this crime 25 years ago. We can't hire him. That is an incredibly sort of burden to bear. All of us as humans, of course, make mistakes all the time. So the right to be forgotten is this idea and the European Union is kind of passing, beginning to pass some legislation around this now. The right to be forgotten is requiring these digital media companies to let go of our past mistakes online, just as we do in the real world. And then finally, the, the third right, and it's a powerful one, is, and this gets to your point of earlier, what she calls the right to a future tense. 
the right for us as human individuals to determine our own destinies, independent of being nudged or steered or predictively programmed by these more and more sophisticated algorithms that know our digital selves more intimately by the day. And to bring us back to your point about peace and, and, and our own inner struggle as humans, we do ourselves no favors if we don't distance ourselves from our devices and from our screens and from these platforms on a regular basis. That's media literacy advocate and teacher Rob Williams from our May 2020 episode. Our co-founder Suzanne Kreider delivered an excellent program in November of our 2020 season, asking three experts how we can build peace in conversations with our friends and family and fellow citizens who disagree with us. Here's nonviolent communication trader Roxy Manning. Peace starts within, right? I think about peace happening in many different places. There's a peace in myself. How am I holding myself? I know that when I started NVC, one of the things that really powerfully drew, drew me to it was my realization that I had internalized all of society's judgments about me. I'm a black woman. <laughs> I'm an immigrant. I am fat by normal, um, what people would normally consider an ideal body weight. I'm hearing impaired. I've got a lot of different things that people discriminate against. And I had internalized a lot of negative messages about these. And I found myself moving through the world, judging myself harshly about everything. It is hard to create peace, to look at other people non-judgmentally when we're applying that to ourselves. So start to look at how you're holding yourself. Is there a way to bring more compassion to yourself and then to the people in your inner circle? And then to widen that to the people in your community and then to the people that you don't see as part of your community. But peace actually has to start from within because otherwise we just start to perpetuate these dynamics that also spread out and keep us divided from each other. I think the most powerful path to peace is to realize that it's very easy to blame the individual and to leave it at that, to say that person is bad and I get to write them off. That family member always says these horrible things. He's a jerk. I get to write him off. But when we start to say, wow, that person is trying their very best to attend to something that's important to them. And when they do it in this way, here's what's not working for me. That's when I have a path to actually finding a way to work with that person, not to write them off anymore, not to have throwaway people. I see that a lot in our cancel culture, that it's easier to say, let's just cancel that person and say they're a bad person, rather than to say, wow, that was an incredibly painful and tragic way that this person showed up. And I can tell them that that behavior has to stop. And here's why that behavior has to stop without telling them that they're no longer welcome in my life. Lots more with Roxy Manning and Suzanne Kreider's other guests on peacemaking with people we disagree with from our November 2020 episode of Peace Talks Radio. And more informational and inspiring excerpts from other shows when our special program today continues after a short break.
This is Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks radio special, highlighting episodes in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution that dates back to 2002. Each year we present a compendium of highlights from that season of programs. Today you're hearing excerpts from 2020 episodes. The environmental ravages of climate change continued across the world in 2020, manifesting in devastating record fire and hurricane seasons in the U.S. Our correspondent Sarah Holtz interviewed several for her program investigating our mounting anxiety over climate change, including Monique Verdun, an artist and storyteller in Louisiana who produced a documentary called My Louisiana Love that explored the climate and pollution challenges of that region of the U.S. Here's the interviewer, Sarah Holtz. You know, you mentioned that one of the proposed solutions from the state is this engineering intervention that sort of supposes that, okay, maybe it's too late do you work within that framework or are there ways to solve the problem? Or at this point, since a lot of your work is so personal and focused on place and family and, and home, is it about preservation or all of the above, I guess? Yeah. Recently, my new mantra is remain and reclaim. I think that lift or leave doesn't feel right. Retreat and return That's a big maybe, yeah. But I also wonder often if I'm kidding myself, you know, like did I drink the Kool-Aid too and think that like I can build a house on a concrete slab on top of land that is essentially like pudding land and there be a big levee wall around me that, you know, the federal government spent like a billion dollars to build and is sinking and, you know, but I can get flood insurance, like, you know, okay, I'll get a mortgage on that, like first time homeowner, what, you know, there's there are times where I'm talking like out of both sides of my mouth saying, yeah, you know, home is home. There's no place like home. Plant your fruit trees and like keep your seeds growing and like... And then there's another part of me that's like, you know what? I live right down the street from two major oil refineries, and I've packed my car too many times um, to evacuate, to be naive and think that I won't have to do that again. And I also know I don't really ha- know where to run to. So, yeah, I'm a calm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes sense, though, that what you said, uh, you know, kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth because – a situation as complex and, you know, rife with systemic inequality, it's going to force people to mm-hmm. have to operate in like both mindsets at all times. Yeah. I mean, I think when I really think about what I need most, it is my community. I think that, you know, when everyone was scattered to the wind after Katrina and then that ability to come home, but also that people have to leave home all the time, all over the world for many different reasons. And that as time goes on, that I think the great migration from the coast (laughs) has already begun and it will continue. But also at the same time, I think that we have a right to maintain a relationship with the land and the water because it is family as well. You know, I feel like Chicken Little a lot, like 
the land is sinking, the oil is coming, the, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, we might be on the verge of the apocalypse or it just happened. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, I feel that way sometimes. And I think that, you know, if you allow the nature to do what it knows to do, it has the ability to heal itself with a little bit of support and a little bit of like oomph behind it, you know, if you help to to shepherd that just a tiny bit, it's really inspiring to know that we should be more in collaboration with nature than this kind of domination that we've had over the land. I live in the heart of Cancer Alley, just north of the dead zone in a place that provides the statistic used to be a third of the nation's oil and gas was being provided through South Louisiana. Now with like the fracking boom, we're retrofitting pipelines to export fossil fuels to international markets. And we have made the ultimate sacrifice. And I think it's really important for us to all remember that we're connected to this, that the Delta doesn't just matter for me. It matters for like planetary well-being. Um, this is a PowerPoint where life comes to be born, where birds stop on great migrations and, you know, where cypress forest used to be thousand year old trees all around. And if we allow the nature to do what it does it can survive this but we're going to have to let go of believing that we can control it monique verdan artist and filmmaker with sarah holtz from our april 2020 episode on climate anxiety hear more at peacetalksradio.com and let's hear more now from another sarah holtz hosted program about how public art can address a conflict creatively and effectively Here's part of an interview with Heidi Schmalbach, an arts advocate who studies creative placemaking, the idea that art has the potential to grow and actually transform a community. Here's Sarah Holtz with Heidi. I've also read that you've described mural making as democratic, and I, I wonder if you could say more about that. Definitely. I mean, it's certainly, like anything, can and cannot be, and there's obviously there are murals that go up all the time that aren't created in a participatory way and that's totally fine um, but I think there's a strong you know if you have an interest in using a certain form of art making to bring people together mural making is a good one there's just so many ways to include a diversity of voices in in image making and kind of defining um what the what the image represents, what will ultimately take up a lot of visual space, which I think is important to think about, is when you're making public art, it's by definition public. Um, and again, like not everything needs to be created with tons of input, but I think it's best practice for some things to be, and particularly when they're going to be in neighborhoods, um, to be part of a democratic process. Um, and that in and of itself is an opportunity for dialogue that isn't the same thing as having a public meeting. Um, but there's almost always opportunities to bring 
in people with no experience to put paint on a wall. And that feels really good. It just, it's literally, I think, like empowering because there's a lot of fear involved, uh, I think, for a lot of people who are not, who don't define themselves as artists in art making. Um, One of my colleagues, I love how she describes it, she calls it art scars (laughs) from being, and I think she's like so spot on. when you, you know, like at some point, many people in their childhood were like made to believe that they weren't good at art, whether that happened in dance class or in drawing or, you know, whatever, however it happened. Um, she, she says that you carry those art scars with you and like overcoming that at any age is kind of triumphant, you know, and, and it's, there's like an individual, I think a really significant individual benefit that happens when you when you participate in a in a in art making of any kind, but especially in this case, um, in a public piece, in the creation of a public piece. And then like we've already talked about, like the the collective benefit and community building is just so strong. That's Heidi Schmalbach arts advocate with Sarah Holtz. Hear more about how art has helped us address conflict in our world in our July 2020 episode at peacetalksradio.com. In September of 2020, Megan Camrick delivered a program that included an interview with author Glenn Aparicio Perry, who wrote the book Original Politics, How to Make America Sacred Again, spotlighting Native American tenets of governance that the United States actually copied to set up its government centuries ago. Also on the show, Oren Lyons, faith keeper of the Turtle Clan, Onondaga Council of Chiefs with the Six Nations Iroquois Confederacy, who's heard first here with Megan, suggesting that Americans aren't taught about its own nation's ties to Native philosophies. This is what you don't know and what you're not told in your own history. This nation here owes a great deal to the to Confederation because mm. our system was old before God here, and it's based on three principles. First principle would be peace. The second principle would, would be um, equity or fairness. And the third principle would be for as long as the sun shines, the water flows up, and the grass grows green. Now, how long is that? That's right up to today. If we knew more of this history. Why don't you know that? That's the question you should ask. Okay. We don't know this. Why do, okay, so I'll put oh, that yeah. in. I why could answer that. Yeah. Why don't we know that? And what would be different if we learned this? Everything would be different. And we did know it at first. You know, when the Continental Congress first was formed, they did give the credit to Chief Kanas Astego. They did say his words were wise to unite as a confederacy. So there was acknowledgement. And for the first 50 years of this nation, All the world understood that the United States was a hybrid of European values and Native American values. And that's why the world was so fascinated with the United States in those early years. And everything that Oren has been speaking about, it is embedded in the the founding of this nation. A lot of it becomes forgotten in the 19th century. And Andrew Jackson starts the Indian Removal Act of 1830, and he rounds up, you know, he gets the 
Creek and then the Seminole, which were in Florida, but it wasn't even Florida then. It was it was Spain's, you know. And then, and he starts an illegal war there. He's never prosecuted for it. Then he gets the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, and last the Cherokee in the in the horrible Trail of Tears and marches them 1,200 miles out to Oklahoma. At that time, that's when genocide kicked into full gear. That's when the true history of this nation started to be submerged in the shadows. That's when people forgot about their true roots. Participatory democracy was not invented by European men in powdered wigs. When the Continental Congress said to us that they were going to follow our example, they said, you advise us to make a union like yours. We are now going to take your advice and we're going to make a union like yours. That was in 1775. And of course, the response from one of our chiefs was, uh, or the women, all of those leaders, their, their names became an office. And when they died, the women owned that title. And it was a woman's responsibility to choose the leaders. And she holds that title, the clan mother. And she can remove you or malfeasance, and she makes the choice, but it has to be ratified by consensus, not by vote. And so when you, your, your system went to a vote, our leader said to you, you know, you guys are gonna have trouble because you're just going by a little more than half agree. And if you have almost half that don't agree, you're gonna have trouble where you are right now. And they told that to them, mm. this, this eventually you're, you're a flop. And of course, where's the women? How can you have a, have a union without 50% of your population, especially your mother? <laughs> what? So how in the world are you going to have equity? And how are you going to have liberty? And how are you going to have democracy if you're holding 50% of the population down? Mm-hmm. You know how hard they had to fight to get the vote? came out of central New York, and that central New York vote was influenced by our women talking to your women. That's that's where that fight came from, right here. Mm-hmm. Because our, our women said, What's, you guys got to speak up. We can't return to a pre-contact world, obviously. How do we incorporate these ideas into our society now that seems much bigger and more complicated? That's true that we can't return to that way, but we can return some of the fundamental tools and we can put them into place. And one of them is dialogue, you know, listening for the purpose of understanding. So that way we can find some commonality. The principle of peace is not pre-contact. That's today, right now. Equity, that's not pre-contact. So all the things you're talking about, you're talking about a system Basically, our system, when you say pre college you're thinking about us. No, we're talking about the principles that our system is based on. Peace, equity. Those are constants. Nothing mm-hmm. old about them at all. And if you don't have those, you're going to suffer the consequence. When uh, the leadership of the Haudenosaunee, you're instructed to, to now look after all life. You've accepted the responsibility to protect all life. And all life is not human beings. It's animals, it's the trees. So the leadership of uh, Haudenosaunee is based on the protection of all life. 
and it supersedes your your responsibility to even your own family or even your generation. Seven generations give you responsibility to the future. If you provide for that seven generation, you yourself will have peace. Native American elder Oren Lyons and author Glenn Aparicio Perry with Megan Kamrick from the Peace Talks Radio September 2020 episode exploring Native American peace values in governing. While many politicians seem to have forgotten those basic values, some in our history held to them more closely. And we lost one such figure in 2020 with the death of Georgia Congressman and civil rights leader John Lewis. We devoted an entire program to audio of some of the commemorative events in Lewis's life including his memorial service at the U.S. Capitol Rotunda that included his own recorded comments from a previous speech. You must keep the faith and keep your eyes on the prize. That is your calling. That is your mission. That is your moral obligation. That is your mandate. Get out there and do it. Get in the way. In the final analysis, we all must learn to live together as brothers and sisters. We all live in the same house. And it doesn't matter whether we are black or white, Latino, Asian, American, or Native American. It doesn't matter whether we're straight or gay. We're one people, we're one family. We all live in the same house. Be bold. Be courageous. Stand up. Speak up. Speak up and find a way to create the beloved community, the beloved world, a world of peace, a world that recognizes the dignity of all humankind. Never become bitter, never become hostile, never hate, live in peace. We are one, one people, and one love. Thank you very much. The recorded remarks of John Lewis from an Emory University commencement address from a few years earlier. The recorded applause from that crowd gave way to an extended standing ovation from the crowd of friends and colleagues encircling John Lewis's flag-draped casket resting in the center of the U.S. Capitol Rotunda July 27, 2020, 10 days after Congressman Lewis died at the age of 80 of pancreatic cancer. Please go to peacetalksradio.com for all of our programs and to find out how you can help sustain our nonprofit work with a donation. For Sarah Holtz, Megan Kamrick, co-founder Suzanne Kreider, and myself, Paul Ingalls, thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. <laughs>